Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr. And I'm Caitlin Andrzejczyk. And this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Thank you for downloading this podcast, a free service of the Endocrine Society. In this episode, we talk about diabetes and cancer with Anupam Kotwal, Endocrinology Fellow at the Mayo Clinic. His research shows the potential for autoimmune diabetes outcomes from novel anti-cancer agents. Dr. Kotwal presented his research in March at the Endocrine Society's annual meeting in Chicago, and we spoke with him there. Also, Caitlin will tell us about another new feature, our research update, and she will ask our trivia question. Stay tuned. Let's start with our research updates. In this episode, we learn about new research investigating a link between immune checkpoint regulators and the development of autoimmune diabetes. If you're interested in learning more about recent diabetes research published in Endocrine Society journals, check out our diabetes thematic issue. You can find a link by going to endocrine.org podcast and looking for this episode. In this curated collection, We include clinical articles focusing on medical strategies targeting remission of type 2 diabetes and the effects of different diets in pre-diabetic patients. We also have a retrospective study of the importance of dietary fat and protein in the management of type 1 diabetes, a proposed mechanistic explanation for how menopausal hormone therapy affects women with type 2 diabetes, and more. Basic science articles include a molecular analysis of adiponectin and its receptors in diabetic kidney disease, a study about the effects of in utero exposure to high-fat diets on the development of metabolic disease and diabetes, and many more. For our trivia question today, let's broaden our perspective. What do you think the global prevalence is of diabetes? I'll have the answer for you after our interview. And now, our interview with Anupam Kotwal a clinical educator and researcher, and a fellow at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Kotwal and his colleagues presented their research on diabetes and anti-cancer agents at the Endocrine Society's annual meeting in Chicago, and we spoke with him there. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And your endo presentation is titled, Immune Checkpoint Inhibitors, an Emerging Cause of Autoimmune Diabetes Mellitus. This is an important issue. Uh, Your work is examining novel anti-cancer agents and exploring their potential endocrine immune-related adverse effects. But first, uh, can you tell us a little bit about these specific anti-cancer agents that you looked at? Yeah, so uh, we looked at uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors, which uh, block immune checkpoints, namely CTLA-4 or PD-1. So we looked at three of them. One of them is a CTLA-4 inhibitor called epilimumab. The two PD-1 inhibitors are nivolumab or pembrolizumab. Following that, there have been new drugs which block the PDL1, which is a ligand for PD1, uh, avelumab and atezolizumab, but we did not look at those agents as they're much newer. And uh, basically, what we did is looked over five years of any patient at uh, Mayo Clinic, Rochester, who received these drugs and looked for endocrine side effects, uh, thyroid, pituitary, but for this uh, abstract, we focused on uh, diabetes. Can you tell us a little bit more about the specific effects that you were concerned about and that you looked at specifically with your team? Sure. So um, as we know from reading from trials, diabetes has been reported about less than 1% in different clinical trials. Uh, The most it was reported was about 1.5% in a combination therapy trial. So what we did was we looked uh, for the onset of new 
insulin requiring diabetes and there are set criteria for that like a presentation with diabetic ketoacidosis or starting multiple daily injections of insulin but at the same time we also looked at patients who had type 2 diabetes from before and were either on oral therapy or once a day insulin and we categorized them as having significant worsening based on certain parameters like increase in a1c by more than 10% if they developed a diabetic emergency or they if they had significant increase in sugars with ketones either in the blood or the urine and so we have these two groups one new onset insulin requiring which we think is predominantly autoimmune or this new type of type 1 diabetes from the checkpoint inhibitor and the other group is the one with significant worsening of type 2 diabetes now the second group is not very well characterized because clinically some of them are felt that this could just be steroid induced diabetes or some are felt this is just the progression of their type 2 diabetes but we think that the temporal association between receiving the checkpoint inhibitor and then having an unexplained worsening of their diabetes leads us to think that it's most likely the immune checkpoint inhibitor that caused that and then we went ahead and characterized the clinical course so four out of the six patients with new onset type 1 diabetes had antibodies the type 1 diabetes antibodies checked and they were positive in all of them Uh, the median age for this group both new onset as well as significant worsening type 2 is older so 50 to 60 years of age kind of makes sense with those who are receiving immune therapies for advanced cancers uh, there was uh, different types of cancer most common was treatment for melanoma which uh, makes sense for these agents and so we have one specific aim was to see what is the frequency of these is it different from that reported in trials and is it different from what we see in the population so autoimmune type 1 diabetes in general population can be 0.5 to 1% depending on different groups but at least in the US it is less than 1% so in the pembrolizumab which is a pd1 inhibitor we had 490 patients out of those 1% developed new diabetes insulin requiring with positive antibodies four of them presented with the emergency of ketoacidosis and all of them had low c peptide which is a marker of insulin production so goes with this insulin deficient diabetes another 1% had significant unexplained worsening of their type 2 diabetes so we attribute that to the checkpoint inhibitor so higher than what would be seen in the general population nivolumab another pd1 inhibitor 0.3% had uh, new onset diabetes so only one case and 0.9% had a significant worsening of type 2 diabetes the third group was the checkpoint inhibitor called ipilimumab which is a ctla4 inhibitor it's not used as frequently as the pd1 inhibitors uh, none of those patients had new onset of diabetes uh, seven patients had significant worsening but we're still characterizing if we can really attribute that to the checkpoint because a lot of them were also on steroids. So with this we answered one of our aims that yes the frequency is increased and this temporal association with positive antibodies low C peptide most patients coming in with uh, diabetic emergency leads us to think that this is from the checkpoint inhibitors. The second specific aim was to characterize the course and the management of these. So in terms of course um our longest follow up for one patient is 13 months uh, median follow up was about 11 months 
none of the patients had resolution of diabetes. All the patients were requiring either multiple daily injections of insulin or uh, insulin pump at the last follow-up. So that leads us to think that most likely this diabetes that has occurred does not undergo remission or does not go away. That being said, there are two case reports out there where in 10 or 12 months, the patients were able to de-escalate their insulin therapy. So this still needs a little bit more study. The second issue was uh, seeing what the antibodies and C-peptide levels were uh, correlating with, if they were correlating with the course. So there was one patient who had three antibodies positive, and that patient developed uh, new-onset diabetes within three weeks of receiving one dose of the checkpoint inhibitor. Otherwise, the median time to onset was four to six weeks, depending on whether this was new-onset diabetes or significant worsening of diabetes. So that leads us to think that maybe with individuals who are more prone to autoimmunity, you know, seen by that person who had more antibodies positive, probably have a faster course of onset. The other patient who had the most significant or most severe presentation with severe DKA and the highest level of blood ketone, that is the highest level of beta-hydroxybutyrate, also was antibody positive. And uh, this patient developed uh, diabetes approximately after two months of therapy. So leads us to think that usually happens within, you know, six weeks to 12 weeks, as early as two to three weeks. However, one patient in our series developed diabetes after one year of continuous therapy. So that kind of makes us to think that th these patients do need continued surveillance to make sure that they do not develop diabetes later on. So is it the patient who might already be at risk for diabetes who you see as most prone to then have this effect, or is it not related? So that's a good question. So as far as type 1 or the autoimmune diabetes, we know there are certain factors. There's genetics, family history of type 1 diabetes or other autoimmune conditions, low body mass index or you know, thin individuals. But the most strong predictor is genetics, and from that, most strongest is the HLA phenotype. Unfortunately, we don't have that information. Clinically, we don't check that, even for patients with new onset of diabetes. Only two patients in our out of our six that had new onset of diabetes had a positive family history of type 1 diabetes. That being said, this data is, in, is taken from medical records, and family history characterization just from medical records is classically known not to be the best. So maybe there is more information there. The presence of autoantibodies does suggest that these individuals are prone to autoimmunity. The other thing is the BMI or the lean body mass. Only three patients of our new onset diabetes had a BMI of 25 or less. The patient with actually the most severe presentation with diabetic ketoacidosis as well as hyperglycemic hyperosmolar state had a BMI of 38. So either we have small numbers, uh, I, uh, you know, that makes this a little bit difficult to answer. So at least based on our data and some case series published there, the body mass index or the family history doesn't really seem to predict this. I'm sure it plays a role. It does play a role in autoimmunity. Uh, but probably because of small numbers or because the other things, you know, the dose of the checkpoint inhibitor, how frequently they're getting the checkpoint inhibitor, if they're really prone to develop insulin deficiency, maybe those factors are more important.
Do you have a hypothesis about the mechanism responsible for the, the checkpoint inhibitors causing the onset of type 1 diabetes or the development of type 2 diabetes? Yeah, so the immune checkpoint inhibitors, what they do is uh, they block the immune checkpoints. So immune checkpoints are supposed to downregulate T-cell signaling, thereby the tumor can escape from you know, T-cell regulation. So when, when the patient is given block, blockers to the immune checkpoints, this inhibits the downregulation of T-cell signaling. That's why the T-cells can then effectively act against the tumor, so it works for the cancer. But at the same time, this leads to breach of tolerance to self-antigens. So this T-cell-mediated autoimmunity. Now, we know from autoimmune type 1 diabetes that it is predominantly mediated from T-cell-mediated destruction of beta cells, which are the insulin-producing cells. So we think the mechanism is actually similar to what occurs in what we know of classic autoimmune type 1 diabetes. And that goes along with the fact that we are finding these people with positive antibodies. Some of them have a history of personal or family history of autoimmunity. Most of the patients in our group had another immune-related adverse effect. So they had other immune side effects from the checkpoint inhibitors. And the most common in our group was the thyroid dysfunction from the immune checkpoint inhibitor. So all of this goes towards saying that the likely underlying mechanism is a T-cell-mediated destruction of the beta cells that would lead to decreased insulin production. That being said, there needs to be a little bit more investigation in terms of the, of the exact etiology. Now, we cannot get samples or biopsy from pancreas for this. It's an invasive procedure. So to really know what is going on at the pancreas requires biomarkers or surrogate markers. So what the C-peptide, which is a marker for insulin secretion, what it does initially, what it does during follow-up. We are now developing this test to see how the C-peptide performs with a mixed meal stimulation test. So does it go over a certain level? And if yes, maybe those people will not develop significant insulin deficiency. If it doesn't, maybe those are who, are, who will likely develop significant insulin deficiency. So this is more in a research aspect that we're trying to do. Uh, we're also trying to understand the body composition. So as we know, BMI is one indicator of you know the body composition, but at the same time, using a DEXA machine to see what the body composition is, visceral fat, subcutaneous fat, maybe that will guide us to see who is more likely to develop insulin deficiency. So these tests are done for patients who develop transplant-related diabetes or diabetes from those therapies. Um, So we're trying to use this as a research tool to further characterize, one, risk factor for development of the immune checkpoint inhibitor-induced diabetes, But more importantly, to characterize who will have more severe diabetes, who who is more likely to have multiple episodes of diabetic ketoacidosis, and maybe to figure out, uh, are there any patients who might have remission of the diabetes at some point? So I'm just going to put myself in the shoes of a primary care provider or possibly a patient. Either I'm a patient who might be on of these PD-1s, or maybe I'm treating a patient who is, it doesn't seem like it's very easy to predict who might have these sort of effects at this point. Like you said, maybe more research is needed. But is there anything that I should be watching out for? Correct. So as we know from thyroid side effects, um, after the thyroid side effects became common, now primary care physicians 
working or if their patients are on these agents, they know that thyroid function tests should be done four weeks, every six weeks or right before every cycle of these agents, which is usually in six to eight week time period. So we think that glucose, fasting blood glucose should be checked at those times as well. And also before starting these agents, hemoglobin A1c or HbA1c, which we know is checked in patients with diabetes, should be done every three months. But at the same time, fructosamine, which is glycated albumin, which gives an idea of how the blood sugar is doing in a shorter time period of, a, of about three to four weeks, will also be helpful instead of waiting for that three-month month time to wait for the hemoglobin A1c to go up above a certain level. So those things can be done clinically. At the same time, we think that these patients should have antibodies tested before starting the immune checkpoint inhibitor. So right now, most tertiary care centers are checking thyroid antibodies before starting these agents or when the patient develops thyroid side effect to see and predict how the thyroid dysfunction will do. So we think that these patients should have antibodies checked. And if someone has antibodies to begin with, those people would be at higher risk. There is no question as we know this from family relatives of patients with type 1 diabetes, family relative of someone with type 1 diabetes who have positive antibody was likely to develop type 1 diabetes. Now, we are also looking at this data going back at samples that were collected at the time of the checkpoint inhibitor start to see if we can check antibodies there. But again, clinically, we don't have that information available. So glucose monitoring, checking antibodies before they are started, and having a low threshold to diagnose insulin-deficient diabetes. I just saw a patient who was on these agents, was also on steroids, had some increase in blood sugars, not the typical type 1 diabetes-like presentation, did not come into the hospital. But the patient was an oral agent metformin, then started on once-a-day insulin within one month, and was having quite a bit of high sugars before meals. So if the progression is this fast, type 2 diabetes usually doesn't progress this fast in a few one to two months. You know, it takes a while. So if the progression is occurring too quickly, the primary care physician should think of these things, you know, check a fasting glucose with a C-peptide if the C-peptide is low. Check antibodies. If they're positive, yes. Doesn't matter if the patient doesn't fit the typical profile of someone with type 1 diabetes. These patients are older. As we've seen, they really don't, they're not very lean like the type 1 diabetes patients. And they might not have a typical family history or a personal history. So I would say just being more cautious of and knowing about this condition is very important. The cancer therapy will be managed by the oncologist. You know, these drugs are very helpful for the cancer. So we don't think from endocrine standpoint that patients should stop these agents. The package inserts for these drugs do say that someone for grade 5 hyperglycemia, so DKA or sugars that lead them in the hospital, these drugs should be stopped permanently. Again, that decision needs to be made in conjunction with the oncologist and seeing if the tumor is responding. And if it is, then by all means, these drugs should be continued. I do think that in the short time, so if patient comes in the ICU or is admitted with the diabetic emergency, of course, they shouldn't receive that cycle of the immune checkpoint inhibitor at that time. But once they are stabilized, you know, any further decision for these drugs should depend on how the cancer is doing. So many cancer patients are taking combined therapies. 
Do you have any data or can you speculate on what the effects of a combination therapy might be for these uh, diabetic patients? So, um, I guess one so one combination is chemotherapy along with the immune checkpoint inhibitor. And I, from my understanding, most chemotherapies, unless, you know, some of them are immunosuppressants used for transplant, but most chemotherapies by themselves are do not cause diabetes. Steroids given with the chemotherapies can cause type 2 diabetes after steroid-induced diabetes, but do not cause the beta cell destruction that was, would cause insulin deficiency. The other aspect is combination of these checkpoint inhibitors. So right now, Epilimumab is given with a PD-1 inhibitor as a combination, and there are also combinations of PD-1 and PD-L1 or CTLA-4 and PD-L1 inhibitors. At least the one trial that was out there did show higher likelihood of other immune side effects, including pituitary, thyroid, and non-endocrine side effects. Diabetes was slightly more, still less than 1.5%, but it makes sense that if there are more than one insult you know, into the autoimmune system, or, well, in this case, more than one reason to activate the immune system, then there is a higher likelihood of developing these side effects. From a a monitoring or a guideline application standpoint, I would say that the way the thyroid testing has been incorporated in the, it's now actually incorporated in the National Cancer Center, the NCCN guidelines. So the way that has been incorporated, the blood sugar is also there, but at the same time, I would say checking antibodies and monitoring of the blood glucose should be part of it. I don't think it would be different uh, monitoring whether the patient is on combination or just one drug. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Uh, sure. So I would like to thank uh, my mentor and principal investigator of this study, Dr. Yogesh Kudva, uh, who is a consultant in Division of Endocrinology at Mayo Clinic. And uh, I would also like to, of course, thank our patients from whom we are able to get this clinical information. And that's the reason that we are doing this uh, research to improve patient care and also help you know, the patient's primary care physician in making these uh, decisions and management decisions. And we want to thank you so much for sharing your work with us and our listeners. Thank you. Thank you. Our trivia question at the beginning of the episode was, what do you think the global prevalence is of diabetes? The answer? According to the World Health Organization's findings from 2016, 422 million adults have diabetes. It's important to understand the risk factors for diabetes. Genetics, age, and family history can increase the likelihood of becoming diabetic and cannot be changed. But some behaviors that increase risk can be alleviated by following a healthy diet and being physically active. And that's all for now. Thank you for listening to the Endocrine News Podcast. To learn more, as Caitlin said, visit our society website at www.endocrine.org podcast. There, click on the link to this episode. We have a lot of interesting topics that we're excited to address in future episodes, but we also want to hear from you. What topics would you like to hear about on the podcast? Let us know at podcast at endocrine.org. You can subscribe to Endocrine News Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.